Before we get to our, uh, the text this morning, got just a, one really, really important announcement. We have um, come to terms or come to an agreement with the landlord regarding uh, the lease rent that we pay for the use of this facility. Uh, we're going to go into a month-by-month extension. Uh, the terms that we agreed on represented a very significant increase in our rent. It's about a $1,500 a month increase. Uh, we did do our research. We checked with various people in the real estate industry um, that the increase is consistent with what is being paid for commercial buildings at this time. Uh, so there wasn't really a lot that could be done there. It does represent a very significant increase in our responsibilities as a body. So that's the first thing that that means is we all have to step up and do a little bit better, a little bit more rather, I should say, uh, in support of the ministry. So please, those of you who are supporting the church, be mindful of that. Those of you who haven't started yet, this would be a great time to start doing that. That's the first thing. Uh, we've got an increased financial need of about 1500 a month. And then the second thing is to really be in prayer. We really need to make a decision. Uh, we've been talking about this for a couple years now, but we're kind of getting to crunch time as far as how we want to go forward as far as a structure. Do we want to try to put forth the effort to acquire this building or look for something else? So please uh, keep the church board, keep Pastor Joyce and I in prayer about that. And if you have any questions about that, please feel free to talk to me after the service. The big thing is to pray. Pray that we'll have wisdom uh, to know what to do moving forward. So open your Bibles, if you would, Mark chapter 6. Uh, it had been my intention this morning to just wrap up chapter 6 and move into chapter 7, um, but I had some great conversations with people this week. Um, started right, right after service was over last week, and it kind of carried through the whole week. Some great questions about this portion of Scripture, some really good discussion. Um, so at the risk of, of being somewhat repetitive, I hope it's not too repetitive, I want to go back over some of that material, address a couple of these questions, and then move on through uh, the short section of chapter 6 that remains and into chapter 7. Uh, if you would like a particular verse as a starting point in your thinking, I would suggest verse 48, where we read, uh, And seeing them straining at the oars, for the wind was against them, at about the fourth watch of the night, he came to them, walking on the sea, and he intended to pass by them. Father, we thank you for your word. Ask, Father, that as we look to it this morning, Father, the, the, the stuff that we need, that our soul needs, that our mind needs, our hands and feet need, that our relationships need, our businesses, everything we do, Lord, the stuff that we need, Father, we know it's here for us, and we pray that we would find it in your word, by the power of your spirit, in Jesus' name, amen. Amen. So uh, let's begin with revisiting some of those things from last week, some really uh, good, good discussion. I was so appreciative of it. Uh, there in verse 48, the, we didn't, I don't think you talked about this much at all, actually. Uh, Jesus stated intention to pass them by. So Jesus uh, has been up in the mountain uh, praying pretty much all night. Uh, says that he dismissed the crowd and it was evening and when he saw them straining at the oars it was the fourth watch that's like all evening so he has spent just about all all night in prayer and um, he sees them straining at the oars as he's walking by them on the water now the text doesn't say a couple of things it doesn't say um, what his reason was um, nor does it say how Mark found this out I mean, maybe Mark had a little conversation with him afterwards. We don't know. But Mark adds this note that Jesus' intention was to pass them by. Now, some of our, of our discussion this week was, was fairly lighthearted. 
like, you know, maybe the Lord was just like messing with them, you know, like as he's walking by and they're killing themselves trying to row. It's like, hey, how's that working for you guys? That's not it. And it's okay to do that. It's okay to look at the text and from, you know, allow our humanity to come out and say, is this what Jesus was doing? Um, I would suggest, and this is speculative, you're certainly free to disagree because the text doesn't say. This is just you know, my opinion, so you can take it for what it's worth. Um, but I, I do think there's a certain amount of argument to be made for the fact that it was about focus. It's about Jesus' focus, right? Because he's done a couple of things after the disciples got in the boat and took off. First, he dismissed the crowd, which we didn't talk much about that last week. But he doesn't just send them away, and he doesn't just walk away. This is not like, you know, a Jesus has left the building moment, right? He actually dismisses them. He addresses them, which tells us about his respect. And we need to be mindful. This is a Gentile crowd, right? Even though it's a Gentile crowd, it's on, the, it's on the eastern side of the Sea of Galilee. He treats them with respect, and he appropriately parts from them, right? Then he goes up in the mountain to pray again from evening all the way to the fourth watch in the morning. And praying about what? Again, we don't know. The text doesn't say, but I think it's reasonable looking forward to chapter 7 to suggest that he's praying about the coming conflict. Because if you're, if you're reading ahead or you know Mark's gospel well, you know that chapter 7 is almost entirely one way or another conflict. And it is some of the most serious focused conflict he has had to this point. And if you've been with us and following along in Mark, you'll know that as Jesus is progressing forward his time in Galilee, which was where he could be open, where he could minister publicly, where he could walk around without a great deal of difficulty, that's coming to a close and his focus is moving more and more to the south, to Judea and Jerusalem, will become much more difficult, uh, a great deal more threatening, um, and of course ultimately his crucifixion. So Jesus' view is, is, is narrowing, and in chapter 7 we're going to see some of the most intense conflict um, and, I mean, a lot of it comes from his mouth. It's not like it just, I mean, he states things pretty directly in chapter 7. So that's coming his way, and I would suggest that was the subject of, of a lot of his prayer, right? So there's an increasing focus, right? So and I don't think it's Jesus, like, didn't care. I think he's walking to get to the other side so that he will be there when they land, so that his arrival will be while it's maybe still dark, maybe not a lot of public attention, to get a chance. Because a pattern has been forming. If, again, if you've been following Mark's gospel, you'll know. This is now the fourth or fifth time he's crossed the Sea of Galilee. And it's become kind of like a, like a pattern. Like he gets in the boat to get away from the crowds, and he gets to the other side, and there's a crowd. And he ministers to them. And then he gets in the boat, get away from the crowd, and he goes back, and there's a crowd. And it's back and forth and back and forth. This particular time, he throws him a curveball. And instead of going east to west, he turns north. Right? Because Bethsaida, which he instructed his disciples to go to, is at the north end of the Sea of Galilee. It's right on the border of the Jewish-Gentile region. We'll talk a little bit more about that. But I would suggest, again, you're free to disagree, that this is Jesus' intent to walk by them, get to Bethsaida, get himself on shore, get ready, and then they'll arrive and they can go from there. And of course, that doesn't happen because he sees them straining at the oars. And that, I mean, it was murderous. They are completely exhausted. They are completely worn out. And so what we really see is not his disconcern or his disinterest, but his empathy. He sees with him. Mean, he can still keep walking, right? He knows they're okay. If he has decided, he is the son of God, right? If he has decided they're going to make it to the other side, 
They're going to make it to the other side. So he doesn't need to be in the boat to get them to the other side. Why does he need to be in the boat? Because of his, compare, his concern and his compassion for their emotional state. He realizes these guys are in a world of hurt, and they simply need me in the boat. That means a lot to me. And because, I mean, we wouldn't have any choice if this is the way God was, because he's God. But if our God were to say, look, you got it, don't bother me, what choice do we have? But he doesn't. He says, okay, you've got this, but tell you what, I'm with you anyway. And it makes so much difference to know in the difficult situations we do face, we'll talk more about this, and, the difficult, and we do face difficult situations, that in that moment of our greatest weakness, he's in the boat. He's right there. He has not left us. He is present, right? Again, in verse 48 to 51, we see his empathy. They're straining at the oars, but they see him, and he speaks to them. Right? He doesn't wait. He doesn't wait for them to cry out to him. Verse 50, he spoke to them. And then in verse 51, he got into the boat. So important to know. In that hour of need, he is, he is with us. But there's another point uh, I want to make. That's the first question. Why did Jesus walk by? I think he was trying to get to the other side. But he waited because he knew they needed his help. Right. The next thing uh, I would note from last week is this reference to the disciples straining at the oars. Again, we touch lightly on that. Uh, first thing, grammatically, it's present. So they're like still doing it. They've been doing it all night. They're doing it. Um, and they're suffering. The word that is used for straining goes well past simple physical strain. It literally means to do violence, to do violence to someone else, to do violence to oneself. So they are really at the point of breaking. And that just reminds us, that just reminds us that the Christian walk is not an easy one. We somehow get the idea that if we're following Christ, the pieces should just all fall into place. I never cease to be amazed at some people. Uh, somebody's having a hard time, and somebody will say, well, you know, maybe you're like not in the will of God because you're having a hard time, right? Well, this just shows that's not true. They were doing exactly what Jesus told them to do. In the time, in the place, in the way Jesus told them to do that, and they are still having a murderous time. So you can't say just because the situation is difficult or challenging or bad that you're out of the will of God. On the other hand, things may be going great, and you may be out of the will of God. You simply cannot judge whether or not you're acting as God would have you act or doing what God would have you do based just on the outward circumstances. That is a lousy way of figuring things out. There's a whole different set of questions to be asked if we want to know, am I doing what I'm supposed to be doing other than, well, how's it going, right? So they're straining at the oars, right? Many times the Christian life is straining at the oars. Obviously, this example, we heard of a pastor in Egypt. I mean, that's beyond any of our comprehension, at least as far as I know, way beyond my comprehension. Right, right smack dab in the middle of God's will. And suffering incredibly. So you just can't, you can't use that as a standard, right? And then verse 52, again, we talked about this last week. They had not gained any insight from the loaves. This probably led to the best question I was asked all week. Um, remember that word insight meant bringing everything together. And um, that word hardened, they were hardened. Uh, their heart was hardened. And it wasn't the usual word for hardened. It, it was a word that related to tufa. 
stone. Some of you will remember that. Um, the point being made was it wasn't their lack of the sincerity of faith or that they didn't have faith, but they suffered from a compromised worldview that left them in a place of calcification. Right? So, Ben, if you pick that picture, build that image up, for those that haven't seen it, this is tufa stone. And it's a result of um, a place where you have tidal water action, usually fresh water. So for whatever reason, not necessarily tidal, but raising and lowering, like river input may alter or something. But as the river rises, these rock formations are covered with water and all the corresponding minerals. And then when the river or the lake goes down, it dries and it calcifies in place. It's very common around the world. This happens to be from the Pacific Southwest, right? And it's, it's, a, it's a result of the, of the change from being underwater to out of the water, underwater, out of the water, this action. But the point is, the stone doesn't move. And that's where the calcification occurs. If this stone, were, if it would, you don't see calcification like this on something that's moving. That's the point, right? If in our Christian walk, we're not going anywhere, if we're just sitting or if we allow ourselves to be influenced by conflicting things. We're in our Christian faith one day and out of our Christian faith the other day. Or the point I made last week, and I really think is very accurate in describing this, if we're trying to walk in that sense of equilibrium between the world's values and, 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 and biblical values or godly values or kingdom values, or if we fall into that trap of thinking, you know, I got the spiritual part of my life and that's the Jesus part, or then I got everything else. I got my business, I got my relationships, I got, you know, my interests, whatever else I'm doing, that's not the Jesus part of my life. And we're trying to maintain that. That's, that's a false sense of balance. Yeah, that, all that is a stagnation. And when we're stagnant, this can happen. And, and our vision becomes calcified. And that's where Mark is touching on some stuff by uh, Hippocrates, the old physician who used this word to describe uh, cataracts in the eye, this form of layering or calcification, right? So this is not where Jesus wants us. To be honest with you, I tried to find a really ugly picture of this, and none of them were any good. Um, so we came up with this one, and it's unfortunate it's so beautiful. Um, but the rocks are still ugly, okay? Give me that. The rocks are still ugly. That's not what we want to be, all right? So the question that I was asked about this last week, which is really where we're going, is, well, Pastor, if we, and I so appreciate when people ask me, you know, like, well, you said this, but what about, I appreciate that. They said, if we're supposed to subject all of our life, the whole of our experience, to the will of God, and we're supposed to do everything as we're responding to the will of God, does that mean we just, like, you know, sit on a rock and wait for him to say something? Or do we just, like, wait in place until we get specific direction? That's that. No, the idea is that we... Follow him as we understand him, with whatever understanding we have, and as we seek the face of God. I never forget one of the best pieces of advice I ever got, Dr. Gordon Fee, it was great. Um, he was speaking to a bunch of college students, and there were yeah, hundreds of us there. And he was speaking from Corinthians, talking about following the will of God. And he said, I will give you a foolproof method to follow the will of God in your life. And as you can imagine, the room went silent. We are all, which are college students, right? The Bible college, we're all like tuned in, right? He said, here's how you do it. He said, you pray until you know that you want to do God's will in every part of your life. Okay, first step. Second step, you pray until you know that God knows you want to do his will in every part of your life, right? And then you pray until you know that you know that God, you got it. You establish that in prayer, that you want to do God's will 
and then you go out and do whatever makes the most sense to you. You use your God-given, you know, noggin to do what you think you should do, in, in, you know, consistent with his word, right? And then here's the beauty. Here is the beauty of what he said. I'll never forget this. If you are sincere in your pursuit of God, even if you're in the, going in the wrong direction, he will take that and use that moment to turn you in the right direction. He is big enough that if you are sincere in pursuing him, that he will turn you in the right direction. But here's the key. That works so much better when you're moving. Right? And in the course of these, this discussion, which I've had with several this week, two examples came to mind. Uh, one was one of my father-in-law's great bits of, of practical wisdom. He, he, I heard him say it so many times. You know, a vehicle is so much easier to steer when it's moving. You know, of course, he, he was old enough that I think he was probably thinking pre-power steering days. Uh, but even with power steering, it's so much easier to turn that wheel when the vehicle's moving, right? Not to mention being a whole lot better for the vehicle, right? So things are easier to steer when they're moving. Or as I like to point out, um, back in, from my days in the military, that uh, we had these things called standing orders. And if you didn't know what to do, you just opened the book and there were the standing orders and told you what to do, right? And when all else fails, you just go back to what we call the last order given. Whatever, if you didn't know what to do, think back to the last time somebody with more authority than you told you what to do and go do it, right? But, I mean, I think those are good, but it's not like that's Bible. I mean, I respect my father-in-law, but his words weren't Bible, and mine certainly aren't. And then I looked at this one, the disciples, straining at the oars. What are they doing? Despite the insurmountable difficulty, despite the fact they probably were not making a whole lot of progress, they were doing what Jesus told them to do. So the idea that we, we, we subject the whole of our lives to his will, try to do his will in every part of our life, doesn't mean we sit on a rock and wait for him to speak. No, we pray, we're in his word, we're in the, in the body of faith, and then we're doing what his, his, our God-given brain tells us to do, and trusting in him, he will get us to the right place. Okay, so that's last week. Now let's move forward just a little bit here. Let's wrap up chapter 6. Um, Verse 53, they crossed over. And all of this, I'm taking the time to do this because all of this sets up this conflict that's going to occur in chapter 7. Um, when they crossed over and they came to the land of Gennesaret, which is the very northern section of the sea, right? And they moored to the shore. And when they had come out of the boat, immediately, typical, you know, Jesus scene, came out of the boat, people recognized and ran to the whole country, began to carry about on pallets those who were sick and the place they heard he was. And when he entered the villages, the cities, the countryside, they were laying the sick in the marketplaces. Can you imagine the chaos? All of these sick people laying around on the streets in the marketplaces, right? And entreating him that he might just touch the fringe, they might touch the fringe of his cloak, cloak and as many as touched him were cured. Stereo Typical, what happens when Jesus shows up seen, right? So what's different about this, right? Again, we've seen this repeated again and again and again. And I always like to ask the question, what is different about this scene? Well, Mark, Mark sneaks something in on us, right? He makes a comment that is not made anywhere else in, in shore. And if, if you'll forgive me, um, it's, it's a nautical term. We've got to talk nautical stuff this morning. It says when, in, in the verse, it said when they crossed over to the land of Yenisaret, they moored to the shore. And if you have a Bible with multiple translations, you'll notice that that is translated a couple of different ways. Uh, some say they anchored to the shore, some they moored to the shore, some they approached the shore, okay? 
it's a, it's, it's a strange word because it doesn't use the word shore and it doesn't use the word anchor. But in usage, it means to draw close to the shore and prepare to land, right? Now, the relevance of that, the reason that's there from a practical standpoint is if you look at a map of the Sea of Galilee, you'll notice that on the east and west side, it's very mountainous, right? Which means you can bring a vessel right up to the beach, or if it's a cliff, to the cliff. But at the north and south end, you can't do that because the water shallows out too much. So you have to stop your boat a good ways off the beach, you know, and drop the hook and then wade to shore or have a smaller boat take you, something like that. So that would be it from a practical standpoint, but I don't think Mark is giving us this just so we understand, you know, that thing, right? I think Mark is doing something else here because he uses this very unusual word. It's not used anywhere else in Scripture, and I think he does it for a reason, right? The word is built from two different pieces, and it literally means to prepare oneself for a contrary environment, to prepare oneself for... Con it actually has a, has a military application, too, for you know, like ordering troops against one another and anticipating a battle. The point being, and um, a, a good place that parallels this, although the word isn't used, uh, if you'll remember in Acts 27, um, Acts 17, I'm sorry, Acts 17, 27, 17, help me out. Paul's on his journey to Rome. Somebody help me out. Is it 17 or 27? It's in my notes. Hang on. 27, thank you very much. Um, when at, Paul's on his journey to Rome and they sail uh, past the island of Crete, there's two or three places where they stop and ask, because winter's coming. They left kind of late in, in the fall, bad weather's coming. They stopped and, is this the right place for us to spend the winter? What are they asking? Based on the threat that the weather's going to present, is this a good place for us to be all winter? And if you're out in a boat and you're out sailing and you're going to drop the hook someplace and you're going to anchor, that's the question you ask. You ask, is this a good place to be? I don't want to anchor in a place where the wind's going to you know, hit me and it's going to be all gross and horrible, right? You evaluate the environment before you decide, is this what you want to do? So it's that kind of thought process that Jesus is going through with the disciples when they approach the shore at Bethsaida. What is awaiting us? How do we want to approach this? That is what Jesus had been praying for up on the mountain. Knowing what was coming his way, knowing what the disciples would be facing, which is completely consistent with everything he's been saying up, until, up to this point, about the disciples straining at the oars, about not getting caught be, you know, between two different perspectives, about recognizing that the environment in which we live the Christian life is usually not friendly. The cultural, social, spiritual environment that we live the Christian life in is usually not friendly. It's usually not conducive to our faith. And that is why our decision-making process is so incredibly important. We have to make the decisions we make mindful that everything culturally which is important to us is that calcification stuff. It wants to freeze us in place, stop us in our Christian growth, rather than moving forward in the, in the things of the Lord. And let's just touch really quickly, and then, and then we'll wrap up, with how chapter 7 begins. They, they're out of the boat. They either wade ashore or they get a little boat. We don't know. They're out of the boat. It starts just like this. And the Pharisees and some of the scribes gathered together around him when they had come from Jerusalem. Get the difference? This is not religious authorities that happen to be there. 
that were offended by what they saw him do, which has kind of been the typical up to this point. This is, this is, a, this is a gang of you know, religious gunslingers that were sent from Jerusalem for the specific purpose of confronting him. And they had seen that some of his disciples were eating their bread with impure hands, that is, unwashed. And so the, the discussion is the fact that the disciples are not washing their hands every time they put something in their mouth, which is a violation of what? The traditions, not the law. So the conflict between the Pharisees and the scribes and Jesus is about compliance with things of their religious tradition. And just hop right on down to verse 6. And Jesus says this, Rightly did Isaiah prophesy of you hypocrites. Now remember, he's speaking to those religious authorities that everybody around had been trained from the time they were old enough to understand to, be, to think of as the experts in the things of God. In that box of my life that says this is what you're supposed to do as far as God is concerned, these are the experts. And this is what Jesus has to say to them. He said, um, rightly did Isaiah prophesy of you hypocrites, for it's written, This people honors me with their lips, but their heart is far away from me. In vain they do worship me, teaching as doctrines the precepts of men, teaching, neglecting the commandment of God, you hold to the traditions of men. He was also saying to them, listen to his words, you think Jesus isn't sarcastic? You think Jesus wouldn't stoop to sarcasm? Insulting? Biting sarcasm, you nicely set aside the commandment of God in order to keep your tradition. Who really picked this fight? Jesus picked this fight. This is a fight that he picked. God grant us wisdom in this day and age in which we live. We live in a day, I don't have to tell you, I don't have to supply the details, watch the news for two minutes, you get a pretty good picture of what's going on. God grant us wisdom to know when to hold our mouth or hold our peace and when to pick a fight. God grant us wisdom to know how we navigate this world in such a way that while the world may be retreating backwards away from God, we continue to move forward toward God. Because that is the most important thing we can do. Continue to move forward toward God. The chapter will continue with this conflict between Jesus and the scribes and the Pharisees. I would suggest that Mark's choice of words here, specifically the idea that, that Jesus is approaching the shore of Bethsaida, had much more to do than just weather. He saw the conflict was coming. And so here I would simply stop and ask this. Do we as the followers of Christ, it's such a different thing to ask someone if they're a Christian and ask them if they're a follower of Christ. There shouldn't be a difference, but there is. Do we tab the label of Christian or do we follow Christ? Do we as followers of Christ take the time to look around us and anticipate what is coming our way? Now that is not to live in fear. That is not to uh, embrace our anxieties, but simply to take stock of ourselves and our environment and ask if we are acting appropriately. Peter put it this way in verse, chapter 1, verse 13. He said, prepare your minds for action. Are we a people, as followers of Christ, moving towards him, moving into the kingdom with minds prepared for action, right? We do that through prayer. We do that through staying close to Jesus in his word, walking in obedience, 
walking in the presence of in the presence of the company of believers. This here is so important to that. Where we share with one another the joys, the sorrows, the victories, the apparent defeats. We share that with one another. We learn what it is to hear his voice by the presence and the power of his spirit. Here's the good news. We do that, we'll be fine. Do not let the world think, cause you to think it's winning. We hear his voice, we follow him, we'll be fine. Father, thank you for your word, Lord, and as we look through it, we know, Lord, that even as Jesus was facing impending death, even as, we knew, as he knew, Father, the cross hung over his life, he was not dissuaded, not in the least, but his focus only sharpened. Father, let us be simply a people like that, Lord. Father, that with every difficulty, every challenge that comes our way, Father, especially those, Father, that we sense are, are you know, of a spiritual nature, the enemy trying to discourage us, try to knock us off track, Lord. I pray, Father, all that will do is cause us to sharpen our focus, our attention on you. Help us to that, and we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's stand and worship the Lord this morning.